Good. So, if you'd like to turn, if you have your Bibles with you, it will be on the screen, but if you'd like to turn with me to uh, the next section of Luke 12. Luke, Luke 12. Wasn't yesterday a wonderful day? Wonderful, wonderful day. Uh, some really... Some really good conversations were had with uh, people who we met. Uh, there were many tracts and uh, Bibles given out and Gospel of John's given out and Hope magazine given out. It was just a wonderful time that we had to keep, like, I think George said it in his prayer, please keep praying. For, you may not know the names of the people, but God does. So just pray for all the conversations that we had and let's pray that those seeds uh, water that they may come to find a saving faith. Amen. Amen. Well, it's been a bit of a been a bit of a cu- tough couple of weeks, hasn't it? Um, in our journey of Luke, with all this talk of end times and judgment, it's uh, it's one of the challenges when you work through a book of the Bible. You can't not skip over the things that you don't want to talk about or you don't want to hear because it forces you to stop and pause and say, right, Lord, what are you saying to us? But it has been tough. Today is not going to be any different, and neither is next week, so hold on there. Okay, there, there is a turning coming, all right? But just hold on there. Last week we explored Jesus as he challenged believers to stay alert, to stay ready, because a day will come when he will return to judge the world. But the truth is, when that happens, it will be too late for many people. It will be too late. The season of grace would have passed. When we looked at his warning in verse 48, to believers that everyone to whom much is given, of much will be required. And from him to whom they, in, they are, in, uh, sorry, are entrusted much, they will demand the more. Today, we will see that the need for faithfulness and obedience as disciples of Jesus is followed by Jesus introducing or really summarizing the reason for his coming. You could argue this is a bit of a mission statement. If you were to ask Jesus for a mission statement, this is probably summarised what he would be saying. So read with me, if you will, follow with me, in Luke 12, starting from verse 49. So this is Jesus still responding here to Peter's question from last week. Peter's question of, are you talking... To us or to all? This is still that flow, okay? So Jesus says, <coughs> I came to cast... <coughs> Let's start that again. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it would already kindle. I have a baptism to be baptised with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, 
three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat. And that happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Heavenly Father, Lord, we recognise that your words are not always fluffy and comforting to us. Lord, they can be real challenges to us. But Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you that you did bring a balance into the world and you didn't hold back from explaining to us both sides, Lord, of this reality in which we live. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth and its guidance for us. And we ask, Lord, and I ask, Lord, this morning that you give each and every one of us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you would like to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when I was younger, and when when my brother was younger as well, um, we grew up in Gray's Methodist Church, and every year there used to be what we would call family camp, uh, where most of the church would converge on a place called Honey Hill, um, a boys' brigade campsite. Anyone heard of Honey Hill in Kent? Anyone been there? No? Okay. Well, it was a boys' brigade campsite, and we went there for a long weekend uh, of fun and of uh, fellowship. And one of the things I remember vividly is a big campfire that we used to have on the Saturday evening. I remember vividly uh, playing as kids, but watching some people build this fire of just wood and bits and pieces that they have found around the site. And then in the evening we would gather around it as a church family, uh, drinking soup and eating soup and bread rolls. And I think from time to time, I can't remember if I dreamt this, but potatoes. Did we put potatoes in the fire? Potatoes as well, my brother's nodding. Um, But I remember the most about those times around the campfire is how captivating the fire was. And I think you would all imagine, for those who have got a fire pinch, you remember, you know, there's something about fire, isn't there? It's really captivating. Watching those embers sort of flying out into the sort of the night sky and then just disappearing into what seemed like nothingness, feeling the, the heat on the face and watching as the fire died down and watching the glow of that wood just crackle and shimmer as the wood itself deteriorated. Fire is a fascinating design of God's creation. On the one hand, it's this welcoming friend, particularly on a cold night, or if you need a bit of light to to light your way. But also, on the flip side, it is incredibly dangerous and incredibly destructive. Jesus begins in verse 49 by saying, I came to cast fire 
on the earth and would, or you could render that wish, that it were already kindled. Throughout the scriptures, fire is used in a few different contexts to, in essence, represent certain things. For example, in its, its use can be associated with holiness, with testing, with God's presence. And closer to the context of our passage today, fire is also associated with both judgment and the Holy Spirit. Judgment and the Holy Spirit. We see it in its use in judgment, particularly uh, in Jeremiah 5.14. God says to Jeremiah and through him, Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and these people would, and fire shall consume them. And in Isaiah 4.4, the spirit as fire cleanses and purifies. The Lord shall, this passage says, the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its mist by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Now, where fire is being used in an eschatological perspective here, an end times perspective, particularly there's a tone here with regard to judgment, similar to what we've seen over the last few weeks. I would also suggest that there is an undertone reference here of fire in the purifying work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Just like we've said, fire can lead us and be a friend to us, but it also can be incredibly destructive and dangerous. Here, we have this sense of the same fire, one thing that has two different outcomes. But we also get a sense in this verse of Jesus' desire to see the work of this fire come to its completion. I came to cast fire upon the earth, he says, and wish that it were already kindled. That day, that end of days, which only the Father knows when Jesus will return as the great judge of the world. His final role, his final role in relation to God's salvation plan upon the earth the great purge and judgment of sinful mankind and the gathering and reuniting of his precious believers into God's presence for eternity. Isn't a wonderful picture for us? Amen. But before this can happen, there is a crucial and fundamental task that needs to be completed. This task must be completed by Jesus and Jesus alone before this final season, before the end, can truly begin. In verse 50, Jesus says this, I have a baptism to be baptised with, and how great is my distress 
until it is accomplished. I'm sure some of you may be sitting there thinking, but hang on, Jesus has already been baptised. Yes, he was, you're right. But remember, John's baptism was a specific baptism. Repentance. That was John the the Baptist's baptism was for the repentance. John himself says, I baptise you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, who is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. And who remembers what the next bit is? Fire. Holy Spirit and fire. Even here in John's comment, we see a correlation to what Jesus is teaching today in, or teaching in this passage. Jesus is coming and he will baptise with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Those who repent and believe will receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit and the purifying work in their lives. Hallelujah. The unrepentant will will receive the judgment for the judgment fire, the eternal judgment fire. But what is this baptism that Jesus is referring to? Quite simply, Jesus is referring to and looking toward his death and resurrection upon the cross. This death and resurrection, sorry, his death, which is soon approaching, and his resurrection to new life. This event upon which God's entire salvation plan hinges. The entire salvation plan hinges on this baptism that Jesus needs to go through. How so, I hear you ask. When when we baptise people, we do so in the name of the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but with a focus upon Jesus' death and resurrection. When the person being baptised is submerged into the water, this is representing the death of their old life. You could argue this is symbolism, well it is symbolism of Jesus' death upon the cross, and when they come out of the water, this represents their new life in Christ, symbolising Jesus' rising from the death himself. Baptism is a physical act of our newly repentant life, which is birthed from our revelation that we have led a rebellious life toward God, that we need a saviour, and our decision to surrender our lives to him as Lord and Saviour. During those incredible baptism services that we all enjoy and we have over the years, I'm sure, in many different places and many different churches, there is often that terminology that we use, and it does help just to to give us an overview. Baptism itself is not what saves us, but it is an outward expression of what has happened in our hearts a transformation in our heart, a realisation to what we have been awoken to by the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Baptism is a beautiful thing. 
But to bring us back to the relevance of it in our passage today, no Christian, no Christian, no person who chooses to dedicate their life to Jesus can truly go through the act of baptism if Jesus hadn't first gone through his baptism on the cross, that great sacrificial act of love, grace and mercy. And here's why. On that day, when he hung on that cross and he bore the full wrath of the Father's judgment that was meant for you and I, remember, always got to remember that, upon himself and paved the way for all to have hope now and everlasting life with the Father forever was the same day that he fulfilled and inaugurated the beginning of God's salvation plan to the world. And in doing so, he ushered in a new era, the era in which we now live, this era of grace. An era in which every human can choose the future they want to live. A future of life or death, a freedom or rebellious life, a life of purifying fire of the Holy Spirit or a life of judgment fire. That choice. That choice. But here in this moment, when Jesus is speaking about his baptism and which he is soon to take part in, willingly, remember, we see on the one hand a glimpse here of his emotional anguish at the prospect of what he has to go through. But on the other side, his deep desire to accomplish and fulfill his father's will. I have a baptism to be baptized with, he says, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Church, I will never, I will never, as long as the Lord keeps me on this planet and, and, and keeps me in this position that he so gracious, graciously opened the door for me to serve, I will never ever get tired of asking all present on a Sunday morning or in any other context that I find myself in the question, have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? I'll never get tired of it, even though sometimes you sound like a broken record every single week saying the same thing. I'll never get tired of saying it. Have you surrendered your life to him? Have you... Uh, do you believe that he is who he says he is? Do you believe that he did what he said or what we read in Scripture and that he will do in the future what he promises to do in Scripture? I know there are people in this room who are on the fence. I know there are people in this room who are just not sure whether to believe all of this or not. They might get that sense, that tugging in the heart. They're not quite sure whether to step into that, whether to believe that, whether, it, whether, whether to take that bold step 
to see what this life in Christ actually looks like. I know that there are those in, in this room who feel obliged to come because of a loved one, a relative of some sort. Let's, let's be real with each other. It's why we're here. There are people in this room who you know exactly who I'm talking to. Would rather not be here. Would rather be off, I don't know, doing something else, down watching football or whatever. But you are here today. You are here. And I have the great joy of telling you with all the love in my heart and have the incredible opportunity to tell you that Jesus loves you and that you are not here by chance. Oh, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. You may have been dragged here, but God is the orchestrator in all things. He knows exactly why you're here, and it could be quite possibly to hear this message. It's your choice what you do with it. Your choice what you do with it. But he does love you, and he did die for you, and, I, and, and he does not want you to not receive this free gift that he paid for on that cross. We love free gifts, don't we? You don't get many free gifts in this world. But here's one you can take. But I tell you what, it's, it, compared to all of those good things you bought over the years, or you think you've got free, all those materiali materialistic objects, who after three two or three months are like bored with that now, you will never get bored of Christ. You will never get bored of Christ because he will never get bored of you. He will never get bored of showing you fresh revelations of who he is. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. I promise you it is the best decision that you ever make in your life is to give your life to Christ. Why am I saying all of these? Friends, you need to open your eyes to the world around you. You need to see the chaos that is around us in this world, the confusion, the brokenness that is all around us and ask yourself the simple question, is this really as the world was meant to be? Is this really? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Take the gospel message that we Christians share and profess all the time. Take your time to really give it a go. Read it. Understand it. Speak to someone about it. Absorb it. And then balance it against the world in which you live. And ask yourself the question, which makes more sense? The story the world tells me that I'm just a piece of cosmic stardust. That I came from nothing and I will go back to nothing. That truth, well, truth is anything I want it to be. Come on, do you really? When's the last time you walked in nature? Do you really think we're all just cosmic stardust? The intricacies? Just look at the, the wings of a butterfly or a bird. You tell me, that cannot, that is in no way just this random thing that comes together. It can't be, there's design there. 
and you will be hard pushed for those who, are, who believe more in science than, in, than God. Remember, some of the, the biggest scientists on the planet that, is, that gave us the incredible science wisdom we have now were all Christians. It was their faith in God that drove them to want to understand and see his beauty in science. And you will be hard pushed to find a scientist today that will tell you bluntly that they categorically tell you there isn't something they don't understand that made this, this, this whole universe what it is. The truth is, friends, that you've got to be able to ask the question, is there some validity? Is there truth in what these Christians are professing? Is there? And you've got to give it the time of day, because as we will see next week, for those who will be here next week, as we come to this sort of finality, really, of Jesus' preached his talk to this crowd of a thousand people, in this moment, he simply summarises the need for every person during this time of grace to ask two questions. Do you want to repent or do you want to burn? Do you want to perish? Ultimately, that is the two questions. Very simple and everybody has a choice. We all have a sense that the world is not as it should be. But we all get caught up in its, its gold and its jewels and don't always want to step back and just see the bigger picture in life. We remain, we remain blinded, failing often to act upon the warnings that are around us every single day. And failing to recognise who Jesus is and how crucial his coming into the world was and the message he brought to this generation as it was to the Jewish generation who were there listening to Jesus on that day. Jesus may well have been speaking to us, verse 54. Let me read it. When you see the clouds in the west and you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be a scorching heat and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the world around you. You can see it. You know how to interpret that. The appearance of the earth and the sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time in which you live? Friends, this isn't a game. This isn't a game. Lives, your lives, are literally at stake. Now, with all of that said, though it is the best decision you will ever make, and I will stand on that until the day either Christ comes or he takes me to glory, Christianity isn't a free get-out-of-jail card. Jesus isn't going to take away all your problems. He's not going to take away all your challenges in life, like some miracle cure. Though God will be, and he promises to be with you through all things, through every challenge, to, uh, to be your strength, to be your encourager, to equip you, to sustain you, and he promised to do, promises to do that. It doesn't take away the truth that life as a Christian isn't easy. This is often the part, when we share the gospel with people who aren't Christian, this is often the part we miss out. We share the gospel and say, yeah, come to Christ, Woo, it's all fluffy and lovely, say this prayer, great, you're now a Christian. What we don't say is the life that comes after 
the requirement, the life of a disciple, that is hard work. Which is why Jesus, and we're going to come on to this at some point, count the cost. There is a cost to being a disciple of Jesus. And we need to share that cost. You will be mocked. You will be made fun of for your faith. And for your faith in Christ, there may even come between you, it may even come between you, your friends and your family. This is why Jesus, in verse 50, says this, Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but I have rather, uh, uh, I have, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. There will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now where in this context Jesus' words is referring to the Jewish community who will be divided around this question, is this Jesus Messiah, whom some will believe and others will not believe, this same challenge can be applied to every single one of us today. A division is inevitable when it comes to believing in and following Christ or surrendering to and following the worlds around us. Jesus is coming into the world and the message he preached will cause both division and crisis for people and between people. That is why the message today is called Jesus, the Great Divider. The message he brought divides. From the day when Jesus walked on the earth until the day he returns, there is a sifting, a testing that is taking place. People will either choose Christ's message or they will reject it, laugh at it and mock it. And this decision has the potential to cause a division between ourselves and our close friends and families depending on the choice that you make. It is so important though to be reminded that Jesus did bring peace into the world. Balance. He did bring peace into the world. But only truly for those who understand the times, recognise who he is and surrender to him. The ultimate peace is for those who come to faith, believers. John 16.33, I have said these things to you, he's speaking to believers, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And even Paul in Romans says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace doesn't mean that we, that, that takes us away from having tribulation in the world. Peace amongst the challenges of this world in which we live is a wonderful byproduct of the grace of God. But peace isn't the only thing that he brought. Church, I recognise that this division is very real in many people's lives. I get it. I know that there are people here today who have children who aren't followers of Christ or who have walked away from a faith. I know that there are those who long to see parents and grandparents come to a saving faith 
themselves, particularly as the years move closer to the inevitable. I know your heart breaks when you watch them so engrossed in the world and all its allures. I know your pain. I know your anguish, your longing for their hearts to be softened and opened to the gospel message. But however much it pains me to say this, the truth is that not all people will choose a saving faith in Jesus. Not all people will. Some will reject it and never receive it. They're too engrossed in the world. Guided by the devil's lies of the gospel and faith in Jesus is just a load of rubbish as they wander through life consumed by their wants, their desires, and their passions. But again, friends, there's a balance to be had here. Because I absolutely believe in the word hope and the truth hope, truth in hope. And we all should as well. When Paul is speaking about the marks of a true Christian in Romans 12, he makes a statement which should be on our hearts every day as we deal with and live alongside those in our lives who are lost, who we long to come to know Christ as we do. And I've stood upon these, this simple sentence many times and will continue to. He says this, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayers. Hope. Let's stand on hope. We should live with hope in our hearts that salvation is possible for all people to never give up hope even in the very last minutes of someone's life. There is not one person in this room who knows what goes through someone's mind and heart in those final moments. That is a hope to cling to. There is always hope for the child that's lost and in the world. There is always hope. Second, be patient. We should have patience when we see our friends and loved ones be so consumed by the world. However heartbreaking it is, we've got to have patience and do our best to show the love of Christ and the grace of Christ whilst challenging them in love on the consequences of their actions. Don't just love them and show them grace. We've got to challenge them. Open our eyes to the dangers and be constant in prayer. Oh, prayer. Something people struggle so much with, but it's so fundamental to the life of a believer. Constant in prayer. We should never stop praying to God for their protection, for their deliverance, and for the Holy Spirit to touch their hearts and so that they can come into a saving faith in Jesus Christ. There is always hope. Always. But don't lose heart. Can I invite the band up, please? Friends, these are challenging times. And what's really interesting in this, the message that we hear Jesus speaking 2,000 years ago to the Jews of his day, it's an uncanny similarity in a lot of ways, isn't it? That's because God's word is relevant for all times, in all places. 
It's like he thought it through, didn't it, before he uh, shared the word. But though some will experience judgment, the judgment of fire of God, and we pray that we can do our best as his hands and feet to share the message to as many people as we can and then trust the Holy Spirit to do the Holy Spirit's work. Every God-fearing, Jesus-loving Christian in this room will experience the refining fire of the Holy Spirit. Everyone, one of us will do, depending on how open we are to it as we journey in becoming Christ-like. Church, as you go into this next week, allow the light of Christ to shine through you. Just like those of you who were there yesterday, allow the, the light of Christ to shine through you. Live the gospel message of hope. Live it. Don't just speak it or think it. Live it. In your everyday life, live that hope that is inside you. Be a beacon, a signpost to the lost of this world, the lost in your life. A beacon and a signpost to Christ himself. Because that is all we are here for, is to signpost people to, the, to, to our Lord and our Saviour. Amen? Amen. Amen. Over to you. Thank you.